Old Testament reading is from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 21 through 31. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Has, have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Thank you, Margot. Let me pray before we think about this passage. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, that it is absolutely true, that your promises are true. Uh, We thank you that we can trust you when you say that you will do something, that you really will do it. And we thank you for these words of your prophet, for the questions that are asked to us and the reminder of who you are and what your character is like. And, Father, we need to hear it. Um, We need to hear it again. We need constant reminding of who you are and what you've said you're going to do so that we might trust in you and so that we might wait on you. Help us to do that this morning. Um, Give us insight on what that means for us. Um, We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I read a, a memoir a couple weeks ago by a musician that I've listened to for, for years and years. I mean, ever since, I think, late high school. His name is Jeff Tweedy, and um, he is the founder of the band Wilco, the front man of the band. Any Wilco fans in the room? Hey, there's a few. All right, great. You don't need to know who he is in order for this illustration um, to help you. So I read, I didn't know much about his life. I just listened to his music. And so I, you know, I knew there'd be a lot to learn. And what I, one of the things I learned early on about, um, about this musician is that he grew up in a small town in Illinois. Um, he was fairly, um, he just, he felt very isolated and he struggled really early on. He knows now as he looked back, he struggled um, with mental health issues. But 
no one really knew what to do with that at the time, and nobody would even maybe acknowledge that that was true, and so he suffered a lot in, in silence. And he began to develop these migraines that were just debilitating to where he had to miss like almost a year, like a year of school because his migraines were so bad. And as he talked about this in the book, one of the things he said is he was like, I can't prove this medically, but it almost seems like since nobody would acknowledge my suffering, that my body created these migraines in order for people to see that I was hurting. So that people could see that there was something that was not right with me. And then later in life, as a lot of these things still really weren't resolved and dealt with, he discovered that pain medication really took away his fear and it took away some of his hurt and it took away some of his anxiety. And because he was a public figure and because he had a lot of money, what he realized really quickly is that he could get his hands on about as much pain meds as he wanted. And if any of you have been down that road before, what you know is that it doesn't last very long before it becomes completely debilitating itself. And so one day, as he was getting ready to go on tour in Europe, he just couldn't go, and his wife had to take him to the emergency room, and the emergency room realized that there was an addiction problem, there was a mental health problem, and they sent him to a dual diagnosis facility in Chicago, which was not a luxury recovery place where celebrities go. And he said they did a lot of group therapy, and at the very beginning, they would sit in a room, and he said there were some people in this place that were like, they came from very different and harder backgrounds than he did. And he heard um, horrific stories. And he said they were going around, one of the first meetings that he was in, they were going around and, and recounting these stories, and he's sitting there with his eyes wide open and cannot believe some of the things he's hearing. And it gets to the guy next to him, and he knows his turn is next. And he said the guy next to him was just this enormous African-American man, and he started telling about the first drink he ever had when he was eight years old. And I can't repeat the story to you this morning. It's just too bad. It's too awful. But he listened to the story, and he realized now it's his turn. And so he's thinking, you know, I'm like a celebrity musician who has lots of money, I cannot relate, I mean, I can't talk about my suffering. And so he basically tells them that. He basically says, you know, y'all's suffering is worse than my suffering. Your stories are harder than my story is. And he said that, he said that huge black man next to him got up, looked at him, and I can't use the language he used, got up and looked at him and he said, shut up. Everyone suffers the same. Everyone suffers the same. It doesn't discriminate based on your income, based on your race, based on all the things that we might think it does. There's, a, there's few refrains that I've heard more than this one recurring question in my time as a pastor. And what I've realized is this question, I'll tell you what it is in a minute, but this question Even if it's not vocalized, it's still being asked. It's still being uttered. And it doesn't discriminate. I remember sitting with a 19-year-old at a nice liberal arts college who looked as if everything in their life was perfect. And them saying to me, my life, I don't want to go on. I feel like I've already ruined it and there's no more reason to hope sat next to a 55-year-old man on a very 
crusty motel bed as he wept and dry heaved and thought about the fact that he has to go one more time to detox and then rehab. Looking into the eyes of somebody who lost the person that they often said in their life they didn't know that they could ever live without, and now they're faced with the prospect of can they? Can they live without this person? Or looking into the eyes of a single mom who knows she's about to lose her job and is thinking, how in the world am I ever going to support my kids? And so the question, you may have guessed it, that comes up in the midst of all these different forms of pain and all these different forms of suffering is where's God? Where is he? Where is he when I feel so bad? When I feel like I'm giving up hope, when I feel like I can't go on, what do we say and what do we do when God feels absent? That's a question that we ask all the time, but it's a question we especially ask during Advent. When we're stuck in the time between Jesus' first coming and second coming and we're waiting for him to come back and we're asking this question, how long, O Lord? Because it feels like you're taking forever. And we're not sure we understand why you're doing the things that you're doing. You see, Israel felt the absence of God in a way that maybe some of us could never understand or comprehend because they had been lavished with his blessing in a way that was very tangible. They had recounted over and over again through feasts and through festivals that this is a God who brought them out of slavery who brought them out of bondage, that this is a God who said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then they get ransacked. And they get drug out of, literally drug out of their homes. They get taken to a foreign land. And if you could imagine like something similar to that, I mean, it's hard for us to even comprehend something like that happening to us, that another country comes in and invades and literally takes us from our home, brings us to a foreign land. We bow down to another, we have to bow down to another king. This is what's happening to them. And in the midst of that, they're asking this question, where are you? Where is God in the midst of what can be really debilitating, confusing pain and suffering? How does he answer that question? Well, He sends them a prophet, which is what God often did. And this prophet was named Isaiah. And Isaiah was uniquely equipped to answer that question. Because Isaiah's ministry began with a vision of God. If the question is, where is God? Isaiah had the answer. Because Isaiah had seen it with his own eyes. He had seen the Lord, Yahweh. The one who says, I am who I am. And listen to this. I'm going I'm to read back from chapter 6. This is really at the very beginning of Isaiah's ministry as a prophet. This is what happened to him. You've heard it maybe before. Just, just listen to it again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that means. But he says, I saw 
the maker and the creator of the heavens and earth, sitting on a throne, and he was wearing a robe, and his robe, the train of it, was so long that it had filled the entire temple. And he said, above him stood seraphim. And we're like, well, what are those? Well, he describes them. Each of them had six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. Just picture that for a minute. God on his throne in a robe whose train fills the entire temple and these six-winged creatures covering their eyes and covering their feet and with two wings flying around. And what are they doing? They are calling out to one another and they're saying this, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah is watching this and he says, The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. All right, this is his vision. God on his throne, six-winged creatures flying around, saying three times, holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the whole thing is shaking and filling with smoke. What is his reaction? It's probably what my reaction would be, too. He first says, woe is me. Woe is me. And the second thing he says is, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And that's always the first reaction. I don't deserve to be in his presence, but immediately when he sees that, and immediately when he says, woe is me, I'm not worthy to be in the presence of this thing that I am witnessing. And immediately a seraphim flew to him. One of these creatures flies towards Isaiah and takes a burning coal from the altar. The altar was where they made sacrifices. Takes a burning coal and flies toward him. I'm not sure what he must have been thinking at that moment. But he flies toward him and he touched my mouth, Isaiah said. And he said, behold... This has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. That's Isaiah's ministry training, right? That's like three years of seminary crammed down into about two and a half minutes. It involves six-winged creatures with burning coal that are touching his lips in this vision of the Lord, this is why God sends Isaiah to these people because they're asking this question, where is God? And Isaiah is saying, I know where he is. I saw him. I saw him sitting on his throne. And so what is the answer that God gives when we feel like he's absent? It doesn't seem like he very often tells us what we can expect next what our life is going to look like, why we maybe are even suffering in the way we're suffering, why some of the things that have happened in our life that are tragic or confusing. It doesn't seem like there's often direct answers given, but what he usually does do is he gives in return a bigger picture of himself. He gives us, in the midst of this question of where are you, he says, well, I'm right here and I need you to look. I want you to see me. And that he, there's this, you know, this whole passage is basically like when we feel like he's weak and he's absent 
or that his plan doesn't make sense, or he must have forgotten us, or he's delaying too long. In our our finiteness, we ask those questions, and they're legitimate questions to ask all the time. But God immediately comes back to them through his prophet, and he asks them a series of questions. And he answers the questions. He asks them questions all throughout this passage, and then he answers the questions. And I think those answers tell us what we need to know. They tell us what God wants us to know when we ask the question, where are you? Where are you when we feel like you're absent? And what do we learn about him? Well, we could go on about these questions and these answers um, for days, and I won't. But let me just point out four things that I think sum up what he's telling them. He's telling them that his, his place matters. He's telling them that his authority matters. That his knowledge and power and strength matters. And that his compassion matters. Think about those for a few minutes. That his, his place matters. In verses 21 through 24, they're asked the question, don't, like, don't you know? Haven't you learned this from the time you were little? Don't you know? Haven't you learned this from the time, from the very beginning? He is seated on his throne. He is above all things. The inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers to him. That means the one that you're so afraid of, the one who you're terrified of what they might think of you, the one who you feel like has the potential to destroy everything in your life, he is answering back, they are like insects to me. I can handle this. He gets to the end of that section and he basically says that princes and presidents and kings and the rulers of the nations, they are as emptiness to him. He can blow on them and they wither. Which also means that there's times in which he doesn't blow on them and they don't wither. But he wants you to know exactly the power that he has. He wants you to know his place, that his place is above the circle of of the earth. And it's hard for us to to see that. It's hard for us to believe that. It's hard for us to keep that in our heads. So Isaiah reminds us when we ask that question. But his authority matters in verses 25 through 26. Basically, they say, he, he says, is there something else that you can compare to God? Is there someone or something else that even comes close to being compared to him? And Isaiah basically says, if If you think that there is, then let me ask you to go out in the night and look up at the stars. And ask the question, who created these? Who who knows each one of these by name? You know, in our galaxy alone, the low estimate is there are 250 billion stars. 250 billion stars. This is why Isaiah is using this as a reference point. They didn't know this. We still know very little about it. There are about 10 billion galaxies in the observable universe, of which we're one. And if you have a conservative estimate of maybe 100 billion stars per galaxy, you know how many stars that is in the observable universe? 100 billion trillion which is a one with 21 zeros behind it. When I was really, when I was much younger, 
this is one of those stories that I can't remember if it actually happened or not. I can't remember if I just thought about doing it or I actually did it. Maybe my parents will listen to this and they'll tell me if it actually happened. But I I do remember this. My brother was into astronomy for a little while. Not astrology, but astronomy. And he got a telescope and we would go outside and we would look at the stars and look at the rings of the stars. And I remember one time when I was, when I was young, I remember I, I read in a magazine, I was like, oh, you can write off to this magazine and they'll name a star after you. Yeah, it's probably like, yeah. Anyway, um, I fell for it, you know, and I did. And I sent this thing in and they sent back, this did happen. I remember, they sent back these coordinates because we tried to look for it. And, like, there was a star out there that we were like, its name, my brother's name is Reg or Reginald. There's a star named Reginald out there in these coordinates. And if I had read Isaiah 40, 26, what I would have known is that every star, every last one of them already has a name. God has already named them. He knows this is what Isaiah is trying to get into our heads. Is this is his way of reminding us that every square inch falls under his authority. Look at the hosts. He says he calls them out. Every one of them, every 100 trillion billion or whatever it is, by name, because he's on his throne. His knowledge and his power and his strength matter. Verses 27 through 31, why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? What are they asking? I mean, you could think about that question in two different ways. You could say, you know, why is my way hidden from the Lord? Like somebody saying, God doesn't really see what I do. I can do whatever I want. Or they're asking the question, why doesn't God see what I do? Why doesn't he see how I hurt? I think that they're asking the latter. Why is my right disregarded by my God? And he comes back and he answers his own question. Again, he is everlasting. He is the creator of the ends in the earth. There is nothing that, that he does not know. He doesn't get weary. Ever. He doesn't get tired. Ever. He doesn't grow faint. His understanding is unsearchable. Earlier in this passage, Isaiah asked, Who has been his counselor? It's a rhetorical question. The one who created all things and knows all things and sits above the circle of the earth doesn't ask permission from anybody and doesn't need a counselor about anything. But fourthly, His compassion matters. In verse 29, it's this amazing turn as Isaiah is telling them all of these things. This is what I've seen, and I'm painting this picture of what I've seen. And then he turns in verse 29 and he says, and he gives that power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. They didn't know necessarily what that meant at the time, and we don't know the full extent of what that means either, but we do know that it wasn't that long before the second person of this triune God took on flesh and made himself weak. That he entered into creation. That he became weak himself so that we might be strong. That he comes and he stoops down to those who are, who are faint and those who are weary. And Isaiah is saying, listen, I know you don't get it. I know you don't understand what is going on in your life right now. How could you? You're finite. You cannot see very much, even though we think we can sometimes. He's saying, I know you can't. You don't know why stuff is happening the way it's happening. He just says, I want you to look at him. 
and I want you to wait. I want you to wait on the Lord. I want you to look at him, and I want you to wait on him. And it's the nature of the one for whom we wait that makes all the difference. It is the nature of the one for whom we wait that makes all of the difference. If we don't understand, if we don't have this vision that Isaiah has of who he is, if we don't have both his transcendence and his eminence, both his prominence over all the, all the molecules of the universe, but also his nearness in his son Jesus, then why wait for him? Why not take matters into your own hands? Why not think that this is all that there is? What does it look like then to wait for this God? What does it look like to wait for the Lord? I I, I think it normally looks really, really mundane. It normally looks like working a job that you don't like. And in the midst of it, finding glimpses of redemption and finding glimpses of beauty and joy and seeing in that I am not without hope. This is not what I thought it would look like. God is still on his throne. He has come near to us in Jesus. He is with me right now. It means just working a job you don't like sometimes. It's what it looks like to be a faithful Christian often, right? It's just to trust him, that he knows what he's doing. It might be bearing with a loved one or a spouse who's been diagnosed with something incredibly difficult or who's suffering with deep depression and just patiently loving that person that God put in your life and without understanding why without knowing why, and knowing that in doing that, you are, you are actually participating in the work of the new heavens and the new earth. It might be just simply in choosing not to direct your web browser to that bit of pornography that you think will relieve some of the pain in your life. And in doing so, you in that moment are proclaiming the light in the midst of darkness. It might be fighting that addiction with all of your might because you realize he gives power to those who are faint. And that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that is sitting on that throne right now is now alive in me, and it means that I can say no. It's what Paul said in that passage from Romans that Josh read earlier that basically said it's time to wake up from your sleep. Don't participate in the works of darkness anymore. anymore. Don't you know that he is coming? That day of salvation is very, very near. The work of Christianity is remembering and believing and seeking the light in the midst of the darkness, and it is not easy work. It only comes by listening to these questions and realizing that the one you trust, he doesn't grow faint and weary. That he loves to share his power and he increases the strength of those who seem almost too faint to walk. Do you ever feel like that? Advent isn't about seeing sort of the gaps in your life so that you can make a moral resolution come the new year to be a better Christian. It is about ripping our gaze off of the things that we think will overcome the darkness and seeing him seated on his throne and the slain lamb standing next to him and realizing that's the one that's coming back. He is returning. And it's trusting in that promise. You know, the most, the most celebrated, I don't think we think about this a lot, the most celebrated saints in heaven are people whose names you've never heard. They're just people who suffered and believed. 
and they didn't lose hope, and they waited on the Lord, and he filled them with strength. I don't have time for that story. Isaiah says, I know you're asking that question. I know you're asking that question because everybody who has ever known God has asked that same question, where did you go? Why are you absent? And Isaiah rushes in and says, your circumstances may not look different, maybe even in your lifetime. He's still there. He's still seated on the throne. His promises are always true. He will keep them Wait upon the Lord, and he will fill you with strength. Maybe you're there now. Maybe you'll be there in the coming year. Maybe you'll find yourself in that place where you ask that question, where did you go? Let me just tell you, he will meet you there. He will. He will meet you there, and he will keep his promises, and he will be your strength when you are weary and you feel like you're going to faint. Isaiah says, behold your God. And wait on him. Let me pray. Father, the fact that you speak to us this morning in your word, that you give us the same vision that you gave to your prophet, that you reveal your nature and your character to us, it's astounding. It's unbelievable. And we confess that it's easy for us to yawn over at times and to really not consider what we hear and what you've given to us. Father, we thank you for this table, and what we encounter here is the fact that you have come near to us in a way that is almost hard to fathom or imagine. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.